We're looking through the the book of Hebrews this fall. Um, Hebrews is a beautiful sermonic letter that I chose to take in 12 parts, which is challenging because the book is long. And so what I'm going to end up doing is reading parts of each chapter and then referencing the other parts um, during the sermon. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and then I'm going to move to verse 7 of chapter 5. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Moving to verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So in there it tells us to hold fast to our confession. That's something we do as humans. Hold fast to our confession of the things that we love, the people and practices, um, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the things we're convicted about in our mind and heart, our affections. We're also formed by our confessions and our activities and our spiritual practices. This is one of the reasons that I continue to um, read and study and dialogue with our leaders about. Because what we do on a Sunday morning is part of forming ourselves as creatures who worship God and learn to love one another. Sometimes when we use the word confession, we think of formal confessions like the Apostles' Creed or perhaps the Westminster Confession of Faith that Reformed and Presbyterian denominations are are fond of. But when the writer of Hebrews talks about holding fast our confession, they didn't have a formal confession, or I think he would have written about it. A lot of people think that uh, some of the, especially from chapter 1 in Hebrews, was used regularly in church services. People think that about Philippians 2 also. And yet it was illegal at the time to call Jesus Lord degrees of severity, depending on where in the Roman Empire or elsewhere that you were. The reason I say that is because holding fast our confession is both a formal thing and an informal thing. So on the one hand, there is a backbone to our theology that we need. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an incredible article about three kinds of language, especially in the scriptures, and we need all of them. The three kinds of language are poetic, Scientific and regular. Poetic, scientific, and regular. If we don't have poetry, then where's the beauty of what we believe? If we don't have the theological language, a lot of people are just like, I don't know anything about theology. And they, If we don't have any theological uh, understanding of the scriptures, there's no backbone. 
we're a body that would just crumple, right? But if we don't have any mundane language, then there's no intimacy. There's only the once a month time that we actually have the energy to be poetic and scientific. My point is, holding fast our confession is both understanding the beauty, perhaps, of the poetry of the Psalms and of Hebrews here. Verse 416 is an encouragement that is all three. It's beautiful encouragement to prayer. It's also, it also has a solid theological backbone, and it's in regular language. I think we know what, even though he doesn't say, the, the writer doesn't say the word pray, I think we know that the point is to pray the way that verse 16 talks about. We need all of these things as a confession that we hold formally and informally. And formally, I mean the, the confessions of faith, the Heidelberg and the Belgic and the Westminster. They're beautiful documents. Some are more beautiful, some more technical. They ask the questions we have of the scriptures and then go all over them to explore them. But in holding fast our confession, what happens when we come to be gripped by and understand what Christ did for us, and we approach the throne of grace with boldness, finding mercy and grace to help in time of need. And do you understand how profoundly under the curse and broken the world is? When are we in need? Pretty much all the time. Brennan Manning, who is uh, probably my favorite Christian author, I say that only, I haven't read one of his books in a while, but He's one of the few Christian authors that I could read more than one chapter at a time of his work. And he was arguing with a friend who said you cannot, he was essentially, his friend was essentially saying you cannot do what Hebrews 4.16 said because it'd be be like just bursting into the president's office or to a king's throne room. Regular citizens are not allowed to do that. And Manning said, you're right. But their children can And I don't know what his friend thought about that, but that's what the writer of Hebrews is taking great pains through building bridges with the many two-by-fours of the Old Testament to help us understand is that we can approach because Jesus, as our older brother, purchased adoption for us. So what's your confession I don't know if you're familiar with the EDC movement, Everyday Carry. I kind of like it. I lose things too much to really get into it. Um, the EDC people are into, EDC stands for Everyday Carry. You can look it up on all your favorite social medias. But they're into watches and knives and compasses, and there's, a, there's kind of an implicit and sometimes explicit rejection of technologies. But they're, but they're saying, what do you need every day? For me, it's a notebook and a pen. I don't even need my driver's license as much as I want to make sure I have a notebook and a pen. What the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, and I hope that you already know this, and if you do, be encouraged. We carry with us a confession at all times. So go ahead and explore the scriptures that they might be, your, that your confession might be strengthened. That what you actually carry with you every day, because as a human, you confess something. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're watching, I'm glad you're here, and I am glad you're exploring and asking your questions, but you profess faith in something, even if that something is simply yourself or a different set of beliefs or a philosophy that isn't especially religious. As a human, you do have faith, and that means that you have a confession. Hopefully it is both beautiful and intellectually uh, reasoned, 
and you can explain it in mundane terms using C.S. Lewis's analogy again. The writer of Hebrews tells us to hold fast our confession to our preeminent priest. I meant to add that word, my bad. Our priest is preeminent, and the reason I include that word, it's not from the book of Hebrews, it's from the book of Colossians, which I believe was answering similar questions. I believe Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, was answering similar questions that the, the writer of Hebrews was addressing. Um, the writer of Hebrews is, is more concerned about the perseverance of the saints than Paul was um, with those specific people, but when he compares Jesus to angels and to Moses and to Aaron, he's pushing back on um, essentially a series of wrong beliefs about Jesus. Jesus is not the best priest. He's the preeminent priest. It's the reason I chose superior over better. I actually don't like either word, but theologically, there is no longer a need for someone to uh, make a sacrifice on our behalf that we might approach the throne of grace. It has been finished. Last week, I, I used a phrase, um, letting the Bible read you. This was um, a loose quote of a French theologian named Emile K. I. Lett. I looked up that pronunciation. It still feels weird, coming off the tongue. I discovered this quote from uh, Tim Keller's book on Jesus the King, his reflection on the Gospel of Mark, and both of these friends that mentioned this quote know me pretty well, and they didn't understand what I meant. When you pick up a great novel, you pick it up because of the story. But often what makes it great is when you feel known by the way the writer describes the human condition or describes a scenario that you either are moved by or can relate to. The Bible is that flipped. It is a book that every page understands you better than you understand yourself. If God exists and the Holy Spirit inspired the text, then the text knows you better than you'll ever know yourself. And so when we go to the scriptures, I want us to go in a broad way. Not only seeking to learn that Jesus is greater than angels and is to be worshipped in angels or not, but perhaps if we're letting the Bible read us, we might notice maybe I'm actually prone to treating Jesus like he's an angel like a fat baby who can sometimes affect my circumstances a little bit, instead of prophet and priest and king. So we can read that, Jesus is greater than angels, and perhaps think, okay, now I understand that. But if we're letting the scriptures read us, what Emil actually said was the book that understands me. He was going to book after book after book. He was despairing after serving... Um, in a world war, I think it was World War II, and he was writing down quotes. And as he wrote down the quotes, then he would go back to them years later and they wouldn't stick with him. But when he read the scriptures, he described it as the book that understands me. When we approach Hebrews with this in our mind, we think, okay, I understand Jesus is greater than angels, but do I ever ask Jesus for change in my circumstances with a mild expectation that he may or may not do it? Or do I approach him as my older brother, who I'm fully comfortable with, who's also the prophet who speaks truth? And I say that. We know that Jesus is greater than Moses. But how many Christians think that Jesus is just a good teacher? He cannot 
be just a good teacher. If he's just a good teacher, he's a terrible teacher because he taught that he was God and that we should eat his flesh and drink his blood. Pretty challenging unless he's God, who we worship, then learn from. So if Hebrews is a book that reads us, we not only intellectually grasp that we don't worship Moses and that Jesus is the prophet, we allow the book to read us. And we don't approach Jesus as a good teacher because he cannot be simply that. Years ago, I got to watch a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Dinesh D'Souza. In my opinion, Hitchens really got the best of him. And because I knew some contacts, this is when I lived in St. Louis, we got to have a, a beverage after the debate. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is now dead. And this is the only Christian argument that he found moving. And after referencing it, he said, everything else by C.S. Lewis I just think is rubbish. And a whole bunch of Christians are sitting there like, what did you say? But he did say that particular argument is spot on. Profound, brilliant, political and, and philosophical and religious writer, Chris Hitchens fully agrees. You cannot call Jesus a good teacher. He's either God or he's not, in which case he's a madman. It was a delightful evening. In this particular passage, in chapter 5 that I'm going to read in just a second, it says Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. And you're like, sure, I can't even always remember who Aaron was. And yet, when you ask me to pray, I wonder if you think my prayers are more powerful than other people's. That's the smile that never made anybody feel better. I don't have a bad phone. My prayers matter a great deal to God, but not any more than yours. He hears me, he hears you, because of Jesus. So as we allow the book of Hebrews to challenge us, not only to learn from it, but to let it read us, that we would be prone to not treating Jesus as though he were greater than angels and Moses and Aaron. From chapter 5, the writer says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of them in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So that's a priest function. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. This is the priest. Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you quoting Psalm 110, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The difference between a priest before Jesus and Jesus is the priest would go in and make sacrifices for himself and then for the other priests and then for himself and the other priests and the people of God. But Jesus never sinned and therefore does not need to atone for himself. In contrasting the old way, the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to not only see who Jesus is more clearly, but help us not turn to others that we don't need to for a priest function. Now, at the same time, there are still priestly roles. One of the more interesting things in our book of government, I know you've all read it, you found it just as much of a page-turner as I did, is I have priestly roles at the barn, specifically with the sacraments. 
baptism and the Lord's Supper because those are so easily abused, not by anyone here, but historically and traditionally, denominationally. But I am never a priest because we have Jesus. And in this way, I'm not pushing back on Roman Catholics. They have an interpretation of Hebrews that is like that much different than ours. But I want you to know that you can approach Hebrews 4.16. You can utilize Hebrews 4.16 freely because of the work of Christ. And this is where we're challenged, right? This is an image that I found, uh, Liam and I found this morning as we were looking. I had looked all week of a sea of glass. Because Ephesians 2 and Hebrews and especially Revelation tell us where Jesus is right now. You know where he is? He's in heaven. And there's a sea of glass dividing him from us. Yet he can still see us and hear us. And eventually that sea of glass will be gone when he returns. And Hebrews is constantly encouraging us to live in the tension that we're waiting for him to come back. And it seems like he's taken a long time, doesn't it? Yet even there, we approach him as older brother, as the truth speaker, prophet, as the priest, the one who finished the work for us, as the king who has yet to come and take up his crown. And he suffered. This is what verses 7 through 10 are reminding us about or teaching us about. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And some of us who are familiar with the Gospels would assume that this is a reference to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. I believe it's actually a comparison to Abraham and to Moses who argued with God and had a passionate, dynamic, conversational, emotional relationship with God, and so did Jesus. I think the most moved the disciples ever were was when Jesus got alone by himself and prayed after his cousin was brutally executed, John the Baptist. I think that's what this is offering to us as an example. If Jesus, in his humanity, needed to cry when he prayed, we do too. Would your prayer life ever make others uncomfortable if you were praying in your bedroom alone and and someone could hear you? I hope that mine would. Sometimes I know it would. Some of the laments that I've written when my friend was sick, and especially at the beginning of COVID, are pretty angry. And, and I hope so, not because I want someone in my basement reading my whiteboard. Our basement's kind of dirty. I don't think you should go down there ever. But I hope that they're intimate enough that it would make someone uncomfortable, and I hope that for you also. Verse 8, it says, Jesus learned. That throw you off? That make you uncomfortable? The writer of Hebrews, again, is preaching. He's, he's, it's a sermonic letter. So what he's getting at, I assume it's a he, what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is learned as an embodied learning. Not new information, but after he had lived it, he knew it in a way that he could relate. When it says he can sympathize, that's not a technical word. That means he felt what we have felt. I was thinking about when uh, I played high school basketball. Um, I was once the sixth man on a team with six players. That's how good I was. Um, and when someone would come up who was younger, we could describe what practice was like or what it was like to play for coach. But then you got to practice and learned what it was actually like. 
I coached for a few years in uh, Webster Groves when I was a youth director, freshman basketball, and um, we would try to describe to them what it would be like to play for the head coach. It was very successful, but boy, he was a firecracker. But until they actually went to practice and saw him at a game and after a game, they didn't know. I could tell you all about chemotherapy, but you won't know it unless you experience it, and I hope you never do. It's so bad. That's what the writer is talking about. Jesus, in his humanity, learned not new information, not things he didn't know, but what it feels like to be a human. And I know he hasn't gone through the exact same experience you have, but in terms of pain, at the root of it, he has gone through worse. And then the writer of Hebrews is going to reference Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a transliteration of two Hebrew words and is an actual person from Genesis chapter 14. The two words mean king and priest. Uh, Genesis 14 is a pretty interesting context. It's Abraham in Canaan, and a lot of horrible stuff's happening. A lot of marginalization of the poor, a lot of um, sexual violence, and uh, Melchizedek is a good king who approaches Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews teaches us something very profound through utilizing uh, Melchizedek as a type of whom Christ is eminently greater. And we'll explore that more and more in the upcoming weeks because he's going to reference Melchizedek a couple of more times in the next handful of chapters. But the point is he's greater than angels, and in fact entirely different, greater than Moses the, as a prophet, greater than Aaron as a priest, and in fact is in line with Melchizedek as a priest and as a king. This is another way of helping us grapple with Jesus' threefold office, as the Westminster Confession of Faith would describe it, prophet, priest, and king. And here's my encouragement for you in light of this. We could, we could hang out in verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But the writer of Hebrews is going to ask us to camp out in that much more thoroughly later. So I want to go back to sympathizing. And I almost changed the language for the sermon, but I realized we need to stick to the word because we know what it means. We know that someone who can sympathize has felt what we have felt. And maybe you're totally comfortable with that. For me, that challenges my imagination, and yet I know that it's true. Here's the encouragement. When you pray this week, some of the time, begin with this. Jesus, I know you can sympathize before you say anything else. And I did this a couple times this week, and it was was so lovely... Helpfully disorienting. It reminds me of so many mundane things about Jesus that he experienced, and he's still Jesus, beyond the sea of glass. The prophet, the priest, the king who hasn't yet taken up his crown, who can sympathize. And it stopped me for a moment and tweaked my prayers away from praying like he's an angel or thinking of him like Moses. We're thinking of him like a priest. He is the high priest. That work is accomplished. And he has experienced fundamentally all that I have in life, yet without sin. So my encouragement is sometime this week, begin your prayers with Jesus. I know you're sympathetic to what's going on. Jesus, I know you can sympathize. And then pray as you're led. And perhaps it'll make no difference in your life. If you pray this way and it makes no difference in your life, 
please contact me. We should probably have you on the prayer team and perhaps preaching. We hold our confession to our priest who suffered to become the source of eternal salvation. And now I want to go back to um, the confession part of it. What do you confess? What's your gospel shorthand? What do you take with you when you go about your day, whether you're working from home or going into the factory or to the office or wherever? What do you take with you? The first great preacher I sat under summarized the gospel so quickly, and I've said this before. He would say, you're a mess and you're loved. And that was so like, I got it, I'm good. Got my confession. But I don't like that. I don't dislike it, but I don't, for me, I don't like it because it doesn't begin where God begins, which is with love. And it misses the fact that we have a vice regency. That's a very technical term for our role as a follower of, cre- of Christ. We have a role in restoring the creation, in loving neighbor, in worshiping God and leading others to worship him in the meantime. We, so for me, the gospel shorthand is you're loved. And you're a mess. Can't save yourself. I'm a mess. Can't save myself. And I have a role. What's your gospel shorthand? And what about your formal exploration? I am 43 years old. I graduated from seminary over a decade ago, and I've been reading Herman Bavink. B-A-V-I-N-C-K, because he's the best. He is the best systematic theologian. And I'm reading his book for everybody, not his most technical stuff, and I love it. I'm underlining like half of it because it's, remind, it's, it's, it's strengthening my daily confession of Christ to my own heart and mind and very being. What about you? What's your informal confession that you take with you at all times? And what's your formal confession? Where are you learning? Jesus is our prophet and older brother. He speaks truly, and we can trust him. He is high priest and the one who can sympathize, the one who has felt what you feel. That's what it means in the Greek. I get nervous talking about feelings because I'm such a feelings guy, and I know so many of you are not feelings people, and yet that's what the writer's getting at. Jesus both atoned for us and knows us. He is both king and friend. He has both accounted for you and validated you. And so we go back to chapter 4, verse 16, and we trust it to encourage us so profoundly. Friends, I think the writer of Hebrews would want us to pay the close, if, if he divided the book up this way, which I think he did. I found another series of resources that, that encourages the way I divided the sermon up. Anyway, he would be glad, or she, the writer of Hebrews would be glad for us to focus again on this. Meg led us in it as we allowed the words to wash over us. The writer's goal is that we be encouraged to persevere in the Christian faith. Because of the work of Christ, we can then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're experiencing the collective grief of COVID. We're experiencing specific griefs in our own life and challenges. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. We are in time of need, and we have Christ. That's such good news. Would you pray with me? Father, would you father our minds to reason and intellectually grapple with the truths you inspired in the book of Hebrews? Jesus, would you shepherd our emotions that we might be honest in our joy and experience sadness in you? Holy Spirit, we know that you have strengthened us and indwell us, We long to be guided by that, moment by moment, to be gripped by our accessibility to the throne, to pray to you and receive help in time of need. Would you remind us to do that? Would you encourage us as we do it? We praise you knowing that you've gone before us this morning and accomplishing those things for your glory and our good. Amen.